I'm Aaron Gullius. And I'm Samantha Angle, and you're listening to Great Lakes Lore. A podcast where two historians dive into legends of murders, ghosts, cryptids, and more in the Great Lakes region. And today we're going to be talking about mystery airships. This is a topic that is unspeakably huge in some ways. There are piles and piles of stories about strange things in the sky during like a particular month in 1897. And we picked out some of the most fun stuff and it's related to the Great Lakes region. And we are going to give you some amazing historical context for mystery airships. Yeah, so the events that we're going to be looking at take place largely in 1897. We're going to give a little bit of backstory that um, comes from 1896, but um, 1897. So in the United States, this takes place during America's Gilded Age. And the Gilded Age usually refers to the last two decades about of the 19th century. And it was a term coined by Mark Twain, actually, and he used it to describe really American society at the time. If you think about the growth of industry and some of these incredibly wealthy folks and the availability of goods and, you know, ordering things from the Sears Roebuck catalog <laughs> and all of those <laughs> things that that couldn't happen 20 years prior. It looked it looked like things were going really well. The nation looked prosperous. Things looked fancy and glamorous the same way that something that's gilded looks gold on the outside. But once you take off that gilding on the inside, things don't look so good. The, you know, rapid urbanization and industrialization and all these kinds of things bred a lot of different problems during this time. And so you have a ton of poverty, both in the cities and in the countrysides. You have dirty cities because suddenly they're just filled and overcrowded with people. And when you get that many people close together, diseases <laughs> and crime spread quite a bit. There are poor working conditions in these factories. And um, farms throughout the country are also hurting at this time as the um, larger bonanza farms and things really um, come to take over the agricultural sector as well. It's a turbulent time. It's a time of change and a time of airships. <laughs> Yes. You covered like the horrible, nasty stuff. So what made it gilded? The Sears Robot Catalog. The Sears Robot Catalog. <laughs> you know, you've got this, this consumerism. And part of consumerism is the availability of goods. So manufacturing and technology. And this is an era in which there are massive technological advances in the United States. Um, railroads are continuing to connect the country in ways that they never had before to a greater extent than ever before. Young Americans can move from the countryside into the cities thinking that that's going to be better for them. They're going to improve their lives in those cities. And so you've got people from other countries moving to American cities. You've got people from inside the country using the railroads to move to American cities and those cities getting bigger. On America's streets, Horse-pulled carts are changing and developing and becoming more modern and are on their way to becoming more like vehicles we would see in decades to come. There are design developments in the vehicles that are on America's streets. It's been 20 years since Edison had exhibited his incandescent light bulb for the first time. In 1893, the Columbian Exposition opened the eyes of the world to the technological capabilities of humanity, from Ferris wheels to, to moving pictures. And part of the technological advances during the 1890s are continued developments in flying machines and air vehicles. Balloons had been around for 
several decades, and we're less than a decade away from the Wright brothers completing their first flight in North Carolina. And news of these tests and experiments are prominent in the media, as we're going to see later. This was also a time of great social activism and and political turmoil as well. From 1896 to 1916, you know, when you're in high school class and, you, you know, you're United States history is broken up into these different ages and eras and things like that. Um, we have the progressive era. So we're at the very beginning of this progressive era. And so social activism was spreading throughout the country as the poor fought for better living conditions and working conditions. And a lot of largely middle class activists were seeking to correct societal ills. So we have folks like Jane Adams in Chicago. She ran um, Hull House and she had all these different programs that were meant to help the poor, the immigrants, you know, all of these types of people who, um, you know, were living lives of squalor um, in, in the cities at that time. And then you also get um, movements such as prohibition. Um, you know, they thought, well, if we eradicate alcohol from these cities, everybody will be in a better condition because alcohol breeds all of the problems. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there, it's also the era of women's suffrage. So we have, um, you know, folks like Susan B. Anthony out there trying to get the vote for women. And and one one of the platforms that they used was like, hey, if if you let women vote, we'll be able to vote in ways that will improve the conditions of these cities because naturally we care more. We have that nurturing element about us. Um, but we also see the growth of unions at this time um, because inside of all of these new factories that are filling up the cities, uh, you know, working conditions were not good. <laughs> they were not safe. Things were not healthy. Um, you know, you get children working, all, all kinds of things. And and so unions were there to help fight for the rights of of you know, working Americans. And so, you know, from the the technological advances, sort of the the disparity between the wealthy and the poor and and all of these social movements, it's it's really a time of great turbulence. Sometimes violent turbulence. I, I, yes. I call my students, you know, when we talk about you know, tens of thousands of strikes in the United States during the 1880s and 1890s and early 1900s, these are not, you know, a bunch of guys on a picket line once a week. That This is it's usually violent and mm-hmm. um, the, the military being used to break up strikes mm-hmm. and, and things like that. It is, uh, it is a, a scary time in the United States. And during times of intense upheaval, you tend to see an uptick in people experiencing and talking about weird things, which is what brings us to airships and how at least I originally came to this story and, and thought it would be a good, uh, a good topic for us. If you spend any time in the UFO field, eventually you will come across some part of a book or some part of a documentary or some episode of a podcast that tries to connect the UFO sightings that began in the late 1940s, a period of intense social and cultural and political upheaval in the wake of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War, to an earlier time of upheaval, 1897, when people saw what were described as airships or sometimes mystery airships in the skies over the United States, sometimes with occupants, sometimes not. So that's that's basically how I came to this and how I came to sort of tell Sam that we needed to do an episode about um, mystery airships. Yeah, because I had never heard of this. <laughs> I have heard of one incident that we are going to talk about um, at the very end, which happened in Texas, not even Great Lakes related. So I mentioned at the beginning of uh, the episode that 
the the stuff we're going to talk about happens in 1897, but we're going to jump back to the fall of 1896 because this is where we see um, the first the first airship sightings, and they happen in California. So we have to leave the Great Lakes region very briefly here. But it started off in Sacramento, where an astronomer saw three lights in the sky, and they were in a triangular formation. And over the next two months, there were two more sightings. In November, there were lights over in in Sacramento again, and they caused some folks to climb up to the top of the Capitol building. They wanted to get a closer look. And the witnesses who were up there said that they could, behind these lights, see a dark figure, which was thought to be the body of an airship. Some even claimed that they could hear faint voices coming from the airship, and they saw two men seated on bicycle frames pedaling as though this is what was powering the ship, and they said that they appeared to be heading towards San Francisco. Then one reporter from the San Francisco Call wrote, Someone has solved the mystery of aerial navigation and is conducting his experiments at night in order to escape impertinent curiosity. So clearly there was no <laughs> connection to to this being, you know, some some Martian or something like that visiting right, the, right. the planet. Um, but they just thought, whoa, someone's figured something out here. <laughs> and we're all kind of excited about it. <laughs> then unfortunately, by the end of November, on November 20th, the San Francisco Chronicle had a story run. And the headline was more of a hoax than an airship. So they were wondering if people were really actually seeing anything at all. But the very next night, the lights came back and they were seen by reputable citizens. And now I always think that this is fun. And we'll see this in a couple of the stories that we relate to you in this in this episode. But they talk about the types of folks who are seeing these things. And, And you see that to this day when it comes to paranormal stuff. They want to you know, prove the credibility <laughs> of the witness. The, these reputable citizens saw saw these lights and they were listed as being a cigar seller. Uh, I don't know if that's a uh, reputable. Seems pretty, spe- pretty specific. <laughs> yeah. And um, disreputable. Yes. A restaurant owner, mm-hmm. Sacramento's deputy sheriff, and a local DA. So the last two I can see touting. <laughs> And they claimed that these lights floated around for about an hour and a half. In the following days, the lights were also seen in Tacoma, Washington, and parts of Western Canada. So this thing was, or things, um, this is a question we're going to have throughout, um, were seen in a variety of places along the West Coast. The sightings then died off over the winter, but they began again in the spring in the Midwest. In February of 1897, they were seen in Nebraska, and then there was a rash of sightings in Kansas and Iowa before moving into the Great Lakes region, which is where we want to pick up (laughs) our storytelling. And and before we do, I just wanted to, just an observation, when you mentioned like an object or objects, it's in the fact that they, they were in the autumn of 1896, they take a break, and then you start seeing them further east in the spring, you take all of these things together, something is going on. Whether or not that something is a mass delusion or not is a question, but yeah. Well, yeah. And I found it interesting. It's not like they saw a few in California and then like somebody in New York City just like, oh, I read the story and now I see them too. Like it's not, they're not scattered. Like if, you know, you were in the the investigation room of like a you know serial killer or something at a police station you know you'd have your dots your little pins in the map right. and they'd all be in a line as they travel across and then i mean it's almost 
sort of at a down east, southeast angle. And then as you can see from the stories we'll tell about the Great Lakes, you know, they move into Nebraska and then they shoot upwards to get into Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan. So there's a trajectory. (laughs) By the time we get to April of 1897, that line has hit the Great Lakes region. And we're going to start in Wisconsin. And according to uh, the newspaper, the Wausau, is that Wausau? I guess. I guess. That's how I'd say it. (laughs) That's how I'd say it, too. Wausau. If anybody listening is from Wausau, Wisconsin, uh, let us know if we're saying that wrong. (laughs) And and be gentle with us. We're we're not from there. We're trying. So several individuals, including a woman named Clara Thomas, saw an egg-shaped darkness behind some mysterious lights on April 8th, 1897. And I just just think that's a very evocative phrase, an egg-shaped. Shaped darkness. <laughs> yeah, that's what they Be- called it. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's like so you've got this void with these lights floating in front of it. So yeah, you'd think it'd be like an object, but the egg-shaped darkness sounds like a, an absurdist novel. Well, when you um like watch ghost hunting shows or listen to ghost stories or whatever, there's a level of dark that's not pitch black, <laughs> right? And so right. then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I can see the the black form or the shadow that's in the darkness, and so that I don't know. I don't know why right. I'm making that statement but i just no it it makes sense i i can sort of see that like like the sort of off black yeah on black sort of sort of thing yeah Yeah. so people saw the 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 egg-shaped darkness and the lights on april 8th and then the next night people tried to go out and find them again uh, because hey we saw it last night maybe it's there again tonight but there was nothing in the sky on the 9th However, northwest of Wausau, in the area surrounding Lake Winnebago, there were some lights there as well. And the next night, there were also lights spotted over Marshfield. And newspaper reports said, quote, hundreds of people filled streets tonight to see the famous airship. It appeared just after sundown, rising like a large meteor. It seemed to assume different colors and moved at a good speed. It was about five miles west and did not present the red color until sinking far in the northwest. With a glass, it showed a cone shape and a bright headlight. It is supposed it was anchored in the dense woods south of town all day and early evening. It will probably reach the Minnesota border by Sunday unless its course is changed. The changing colors, I think, are are something that's consistent throughout Mm -hmm. a number of stories as well. So on April 10th, There is a sighting in Green Bay, and the Green Bay Weekly Gazette, an article from April 14th, said that several prominent citizens, (laughs) so reputable people again, um, including a judge and several attorneys. So again, Mm -hmm. people who you wouldn't, like you said, Sam, wouldn't expect to be making something up like this. And and can evaluate the truth, right? Like a judge is supposed to judge. (laughs) It was seen a few minutes before 10 and was spotted moving north over the eastern part of the city headed for Marinette, Wisconsin. Witnesses described, again, a red light, and that with the use of glasses or binoculars, telescopes, something like that, could see two smaller lights below, sort of a triangle of lights, as we saw in the California sightings. And, quote, it was asserted that back of this headlight, a large cone-like structure could be dimly seen, it having a framework similar to the usual conception of an airship. So people are seeing airship-shaped things. Yeah, I liked that part of the quote because, like, it shows that they've already got this idea implanted in their head. Like, I don't know, if someone said, hey, imagine an airship, like, I'd have many different things. Or, you know, my mind would make up, but, like, they clearly have this image of what this typical airship would be, so... 
I just thought it was an interesting way to phrase it. <laughs> the usual conception of mm-hmm. an airship, which is, like you said, a fancy way of saying that thing people have been seeing. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the, the direction and elevation of the, we'll call it an airship, changed several times. And then the article proposed um, what reads as a possible tale on how four pranksters used a Japanese-style lantern shaped like a hot air balloon to fool everyone. And it's hard to tell if the story was real or not, but the paper asserts that a grocer confirmed the story and that the burned-up airship was found in another man's barnyard. So at the conclusion of all this, they come to kind of a point where they've debunked the story. And, and it was it was really weird the way that it was written. Well, imagine if you saw four people sneaking to the back of the cemetery, like they named the cemetery, and went on to describe this whole elaborate scheme that they would have went through. And you're like, well, the way like was that real? <laughs> like, or are you making this idea up? It, it, when I when I read the article, at least it wasn't clear to me. Like, if you're asserting that this was a prank, come out and say it. <laughs> or you know, or. Or is this a speculation on how it could have been pranked? That's how it read. But then like that and bringing these other two folks like the grocer, they said, you know, the grocer who was a known prankster in his own right said that. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know. It was bizarre. Uh, So then we have an an interesting uh, story that comes about on April 15th from Grand Rapids, Wisconsin. The Wood County Reporter relates a story that two railroad men saw an airship over Baraboo, Wisconsin, which was the winter home of the Ringling Brothers Circus. They said that they saw it hovering over over the, the grounds and, you know, made some different maneuvers and then came down. And then one of the men recalled that that on a previous day, one of the Ringlings had arrived in town and they saw him carrying um, several large baggages enough that a balloon for, say, an airship type thing, you know, mm. could could have been carried down there. And it had been p- spotted in other places previously, like uh, in in the Great Plains states and whatever, where uh, the circus was set to go the next year. And so there was this this sort of proposition that, like, could this all just be a marketing ploy for the Ringling Brothers? And the Ringlings were like, no. <laughs> and also, it's not a very good marketing ploy if nobody knows that it's you. So <laughs> There is that, yeah. And, and I thought it was funny that the folks lived in Baraboo, Wisconsin, are called Barabooians. <laughs> In the outline, just so you all know, I wrote Barabooians, LOL. Apologies if you're from Baraboo. <laughs> like, it would be fun to be a Barabooian, it seems. But they are certain that they're, the, the Barabooians are certain that there is a connection between the airships and, and and the Ringling Brothers. There has to be. But of course, if you have circus folk in town, you probably have to imagine anything could happen. I, I, I was just going to say, you, 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 you know, circus folk, right? <laughs> So, so there's a lot of speculation about what, what the cause of these airships could be. But in an Ashland Weekly News article from April 21st, 1897, this is in Wisconsin, an astronomer claims to have mapped out the movement of the star Betelgeuse. Say that three times. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and calculated its position at different times of the night and tracked those along with at what time folks were claiming to have seen the airship and what direction it was moving. And he claimed that it was just the star Betelgeuse, which due to 
the gases and things that it's burning does kind of, it changes color. Um, you can actually see it in the constellation Orion. Beetlejuice is one of his shoulder points, I believe. And, and so it definitely has a red bit of a glow to it. But then in a bit of a snarky rebuttal, Clara Thomas, if you can remember from the very first story we mentioned, the Wausau story, she wrote a letter back to the paper saying, quote, if a star is long and has wings, electric lights and a cupola, I think it's time some of us began saying our prayers. <laughs> so I, I just, love that. I do, too. I know what I saw <laughs> was no star. I'm going to stop talking about this at some point, but the parallels to UFO stuff in the 1950s and 60s are just outstanding, right down to what you saw was the planet Venus. Mm -hmm. Venus was one of the other things that they were trying to say that it was. The thing I wonder, though, I mean, when I look at a star way out in the sky, I'm not going to think that's a headlight. Are these people seeing a light that's that close? Like, that's... Or is it really far off? Because when you read these stories, I imagine something that's low helicopter flight, right? Like it's, It's close by. You can tell that that's not up in the heavens, so to speak. I'm never going to mistake a star for something that's man-made flying much closer. Granted, I mean, I know 21st century things, but I think even 100 years ago, I wouldn't have. People know what a star looks like. They know what their night sky usually looks like. Yes. And if they are describing something out of the ordinary, why do you assume that they just fell off the turnip truck and have never seen a star before Mm -hmm. or a starry night? I I agree. I I don't, the, what you saw was Beetlejuice or Venus, just it. As an explanation, it just seems so sort of lazy and dismissive. Even though this guy seems to have done a lot of work to figure it out, it still seems like a a (laughs) poo-poo. It really does. Um, I, I think on that note, it's a good place to take a break. Next time, Mackinac Island Ghost Stories. Ooh, I've been there. (laughs) You can subscribe to Great Lakes Lore at greatlakeslore.com or wherever you find podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Great Lakes Lore. And links are in the show notes. And uh, if you could rate and review us wherever you're able to rate and review podcasts, Mm -hmm. that would be Uh, That would be outstanding. We really appreciate those who've done that. Yeah. So now we have a little bit of exciting news that we wanted to share. I guess first we should say that while it had a great run, Legend or Lie is going to be taking a break. (laughs) Um, It's a lot of work coming up with Legends and or Lies in addition to what we're already talking about for an episode. So we're we're doing away with that, but we have something new that we're going to talk about during the halfway break, halfway point, which we'll get to in a second. But first, we have exciting news to share. Beginning uh, February 1st, Chizo Media, which includes Great Lakes Lore that you're listening to right now and our other podcast, The Saucer Life, will be launching a Patreon. <laughs> now, don't worry. Um, everything you've come to expect and know and hopefully love is still going to be here. We're not going to be cutting the episodes in half or Mm-mm. making you pay for half of the episode. You're going to be, you will notice no degradation in service. But <laughs> if you want monthly bonus episodes from both shows and behind the scenes stuff and information and videos and field trips and fun stuff that uh, we're really excited to do. Join us over on the Patreon beginning February 1st. We'll be talking more about it. We're 
pretty excited about it, aren't we, Sam? Yeah, it's something that I've dreamed of whenever I thought of having a podcast or whatever. It's just, um, it's a fun way to provide extra content to those um, folks who, you know, are are stalwart fans. <laughs> um, I'm excited to build the community of all of us together over over at Patreon. You know, some some written content um, about each of the episodes, talking about our research process a little more in depth. All of the things Aaron already mentioned. So, um, yeah, we're looking forward to it. Only stressed a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> only, yeah, you know, only, only stressed, um, only stressed a little bit. Yeah, I, I think it'll be fun. We'll be talking more about this, um, on social media and on our next episode mm-hmm. as well, which will come out on January thirty first. Uh, but yeah, February first, that's going to launch. And between now and next time, be sure to reach out with questions and comments about this episode in email or on social media, and we'll address them uh, at the top of the episode next time. So another change that we're going to be making this year is um, doing away with the Monday mail call episodes. It's not that we don't want to address <laughs> listener comments and questions, because we definitely do. But we want to be more active at the time that you're leaving those questions instead of just saying the thanks, you'll hear from us in five days or something like that. Um, And so we can have more of that instantaneous conversation um, as it's happening and and anything, you know, that stands out to us or that we think warrants a deeper discussion, we'll bring those types of things to the next episode to address. Um, The turnaround time for producing (laughs) an episode every week and finding time to record while also giving you enough time to send in your questions was also just things were getting a bit tight. So... And we'd get good comments and questions mm-hmm. about an episode after we yeah. had to record the mail call episode. So <laughs> you're growing and learning along with yeah. us out there in, <laughs> in audience land. So Sam, what are we doing in this midway section to sort of replace Legend or Lock? Yeah. Um, so we are going to be taking part in a reading challenge. Um, and this was actually something that was posted by the folks over at Astonishing Legends. And so there's a different theme for every month, the book that you choose. And so we thought that it would be fun to read books along with this challenge and then discuss them here on the episode. And um, Astonishing Legends is basically the first podcast that I started listening to when I started listening to podcasts. And so I've been following them for a long time and thought it would be fun to partake in something like this. And so this month's challenge is a book based on a true story. So Aaron, what have you chosen? Okay. Well, I hope it's okay that it isn't paranormal at all. Um, But uh, I am reading, finally, uh, Argo, the Ah. story of the CIA extraction of some hostages from the Iranian embassy siege back in the late 1970s. I'm looking forward to reading that. I am a uh, fairly big Cold War and espionage guy, so it's fun. That's a topic I know very little about. <laughs> so, and I did not see the movie. So, I'll be excited to to hear what what you have to to share on that. So, the book I chose is something I I just found um, searching around. So, I don't know if it's good, bad, or otherwise, <laughs> but it is called um, "The Secret Rooms: A True Story of a Haunted Castle, a Plotting Duchess, and a Family Secret" by Catherine Bailey. And um, it sounds to be sort of records from this family that were left and no one had access to for generations. I think it was generations. And then a historian comes in and kind of sorts through everything and puts 
this whole family kind of history together. And um, so I, I don't know if it's truly haunted in a ghostly haunted sense or if it's just haunted as in like this family had some serious skeletons in the closet. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not started reading it yet, but I thought that the I was drawn, of course, to the historical practice aspect of yeah. of the story. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of it has to do with some World War II stuff as well. Um, so cool. we'll, we will see. I have not started reading it at all. So I have a lot of reading to do. <laughs> I haven't started reading my book either. So um, <laughs> I, think, I think we're in good shape. But we will report back on what we have learned. And mm-hmm. we encourage you to, to pick up a book about a true story that you haven't read before that maybe you've wanted to read or maybe you just sort of found it and let us know what you're reading yeah. and what uh, what you think of it. So we'll have some conversations that way and we'll probably get ideas for more books to read in the future. Yes, yes. All right. Well, let's get back to the show. Soon after its landing, a man not more than two feet in height came out of the ship. He wore an immense beard of a pinkish hue, and his head was ornamented with some ivory-like substance. He was heavily clothed in robes resembling the hide of a hippopotamus. His feet were uncovered near the ankles, but lashed firmly on the soles were two immense pieces of iron ore. About his neck was a string on which were 234 diamonds." We last left the airships in Wisconsin. So at the same time, April of 1897, there were airships in Wisconsin. There were also some interesting sightings in Michigan in late March and April of 1897. So at the end of March, there were near Holland, Michigan, which is out in the western part of the state, reports of mysterious meteors and ghost lights in Ogemaw County. And there were other lights off the shore in Caseville. Residents believed that the lights they saw off the shore were a ghost from a steamer called the Ocante that had sunk in that area several years before. So we've got some overlapping stories here. And in very different sides, different areas. I mean, Ogemaw County is northeast, Holland's west, Caseville's the thumb. Those are all over. It's a lower peninsula weirdness <laughs> extravaganza. <laughs> I would think, in conjunction with the newspaper stories about airships over other nearby other parts of the country, ne- neighboring states, you've got maybe a population that is primed to see things. Maybe we're, we're you know, weirdness is in the air. So the first official, if we want to say that, airship sighting in Michigan was in Alma, Michigan, the evening of Saturday, April 10th. And the next night, uh, in Benton Harbor, Michigan, witnesses saw something strange. And the headline said, it bore colored light. Benton Harbor people claim they saw the airship. And again, colored light, the assumption that an airship is a thing. Everybody's just going to know what it is. They've been reading these stories. I don't know if you picked up on this in the stories that that you looked at, Sam. It always sort of struck me that it's always the airship. Yes, I did. it's, It's not. It's not an airship. Right. It's the airship. Mm-hmm. So there's this implication that there's just one airship mm-hmm. that's flying around. One hoodwink aeronaut out there causing all this trouble. Like I said in my my tweet earlier today, Lee Scoresby, if you're a Golden Compass person. Actually, this will not be a tweet that you saw today because this won't run for another week, but 
we're basically time travelers. Yes. You know, um, honestly. <laughs> so in the article uh, in, in the Benton Harbor newspaper, it said, they said the airship had been seen by several reliable citizens in Benton Harbor and St. Joseph, which is really nearby, who, quote, declare there is no fake about it, end quote. It was seen at five o'clock in the afternoon. Then the day before had blue, red and green lights and was moving to the northwest. Although witnesses said that they couldn't see any sort of outline of the object because of the lights and the altitude of it. I don't know. This seems less intriguing than some of the Wisconsin stories we saw where there were conical shapes and structures. This is just a set of lights moving over Lake Michigan. Mm -hmm. Within a couple days on the 12th, numerous witnesses saw an airship or the airship, uh, depending on how many you think there are in several places. Um, Battle Creek was a big place for it. 30 reputable citizens of Battle Creek saw it. Uh, the sky was clear and that the lights on the aerial visitor were plainly seen. And the airship was a mile high when it was first seen. I'm not sure how they estimated that, but they said it was a mile in the air. Then they heard an explosion and sparks start flying and the airship sort of sinks down to about half a mile of the earth. And then it climbs up again and disappears. And people were not were positive it was not a star. According to some reports, some of the witnesses heard voices yelling out from the damaged airship as it sort of sunk down. That would be traumatic to, to witness. It would be. And like, what would cause somebody to think that they heard voice? Just like with the other one um, that that I had reported on from um california one of the early ones where they thought they heard people in it like how does that happen <laughs> why yeah on the one hand why would you make it up right on the other hand i don't know how loudly would people have to be yelling to hear them a half mile up in the well air? yeah in that case the the california one i it didn't have a distance so right but right. yeah I, I don't know <laughs> but again reputable citizens um doesn't say what jobs they had. So we, <laughs> we don't know if we can judge if they're reputable, if they're judges or, or circus folk or whoever. Um, I think that what needs to happen is that you and I need to learn how to fly a hot air balloon. And then we can test some of these theories out. Like one of us could go up and yell down to the other one and see if we can hear it. You know, <laughs> I think that's a really, really good idea. Completely I will be plausible. I will be on the ground. Um, other people can go up in the balloon. Uh, I, yeah. All right. Well, continuing on here in Michigan, the the same apparent object was seen in nearby Kalamazoo that same night, and it was estimated to be traveling at 50 miles per hour. And then in Pavilion, Michigan, which is near Kalamazoo, two witnesses named George Summers and William Chadburn reported that they saw a bright object explode that evening. Um, others heard the sounds but did not see the explosion. The next day, um, what reports referred to as parts of an electrical appliance were found on the ground and a nearby Comstock, a man found fragments of an unknown, a quote, unknown material on his property. People assumed that the airship was somehow destroyed. So nobody found the airship, but they're finding 
all of these all of these different pieces parts and i'll say that some of these stories even made it into the wisconsin newspapers when i was doing a few general stories they talked about the explosion and in near pavilion so pavilion was actually the the name the town name used so i i want to know what the electrical appliance was that they found and did people back then know what like like that's another thing i mean (laughs) they did i mean that was the phrase in the news reports but it was i'm i mean electricity would have been available in cities at this time i'm not doubting that there were electrical appliances but just like well, I suppose even if someone who didn't own an appliance just saw some different cords and jumbled things, it'll just be, ah, it's part of an appliance <laughs> or right. something. Um, but I mean, it, you'd have to be at that time fairly wealthy, living in a very developed city in order to have um, electrical appliances. I'm just saying. Right. Um, and I'll, I'll just say that in my mind's eye, I'm just picturing a toaster. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's just I, I just visualize this as a toaster for some reason i don't know why my mind combined weird things i had like something between a toaster and a mixer i don't with the cord i don't really know <laughs> weird steampunk yeah this, this whole thing is steampunk um, but if it's steampunk it's not electrical um, that's true uh so so that was on april 12th Things continued on April 13th, a Tuesday, and while some sightings were obvious misidentifications, like a suspicious glow on the horizon that ended up being a barn on fire, it's unfortunate, (laughs) um, other stories were more intriguing. George Parks, who lived near or lived north of Battle Creek, claimed that an airship came within 100 feet of the ground over his cornfield and that a three foot diameter wheel fell off, which visitors to their farm were welcome to come and look at. There were seven sightings then on April 16th, as reported in the Saginaw Courier Herald, and all of these sightings had multiple witnesses. In Middleville, quote, several responsible, ooh, responsible <laughs> residents, so we've got a new adjective here, um, claimed to have seen two of them Wednesday evening. A car attachment had colored lights and scattered sparks and what was supposed to be smoke. At this point, you start to get some hoaxes, of course. Everybody's now trying to just replicate what's going on. Um, and I guess we're calling them copycat hoaxes if we assume that the original was actually a real thing that happened. (laughs) But in Galesburg, a hunter finds what he believes is an anchor from an airship half buried in the ground. It was just a skunk trap. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunate. Um, Newspaper reports become a bit more sarcastic towards those claiming to have seen things. Some examples of the editorial snark we wanted to make sure and include. So the first one, uh, an American has the same right to see airships that he has to see pink winged elephants and man eating cockroaches. (laughs) Uh, The next one is my favorite. Yes. (laughs) The next one is my favorite. The Lake Michigan sea serpent is green with envy over the notoriety being enjoyed just now by its rival, the airship. Yeah, so now we're going to move on to Lanark, Illinois, um, to share a story that is Aaron's favorite. He put this in the outline, Aaron's favorite story. (laughs) Maybe maybe of all time, not just about airships, but one of my favorite stories ever. Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) So this happened April 9th and 10th of 1897, and uh, Lanark is in western Illinois, about 30 minutes from Iowa, so right in the orbit of the Great Plains wave of airship fever. 
On April 9th, a craft described as an airship exploded in the air and crashed on a farm owned by Johann Fliegeltaub, which is German for flying dove, kind of. <laughs> I don't know German. Best, Aaron does. The best I could come up with. It's, it's, it, it, yeah, flying dove. Let's go with that. <laughs> According to newspaper reports, 50 men from the surrounding area went to the farm to investigate. Witnesses claimed they saw the family being shouted at in an unknown language by a man in strange clothes. Two other crew members were dead, and their mangled bodies could be seen in the wreckage. The crashed airship was buried into the ground, with two-thirds of it still above the surface. And in his dispatch, a General F.A. Kerr described it as, quote, Cigar-shaped and made of aluminum, about 30 feet long by 9 feet in diameter, and the steady red glow came from an immense electric lamp that burned upon that part of the strange craft that projected from the ground. There were four side and one rear propellers on the machine, with a fin-like projection above it, evidently the rudder. An immense hole was torn in the underside of the ship, showing that an explosion had occurred, caused probably by a puncture from a lightning rod on the barn, as one of them was slightly bent. It's in the best interests of journalistic integrity to point out that it is the considered opinion of everybody who's looked at it that the Lanark, Illinois story is... I'm not sure if hoax is the right word, but it's a manufactured news story. I I think I would describe it as airship fan fiction, a science fiction story using these elements. And one of the clues to this is that uh, General F.A. Kerr, it's faker is, you know, how the name is spelled. And there's no corroborating evidence um, that this actually happened. You know, when you just said that, it made me think in newspapers back then, you know, they would put in a lot of different like fictitious stories just as like entertainment. And do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. No, you're, yeah, absolutely. And, you're absolutely and, and right. so, yeah. I mean, generally, you know, you can tell that it's, it's a fictionalized story, but I mean, maybe this was was meant to be that, and at the time it was understood as something different. And today, I, you know, now, I mean, because if you just go on and you search, you know, do a search in newspapers.com of airships, of course the story is going to show up. I think that's a really good explanation. I think it's a much better explanation or a way to describe it than calling it a hoax, for example. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. General Kerr describes the uh, the the. The being, the the pilot of the airship, as he or she, so the gender is indeterminate of this person, and says they are, quote, garbed after the fashion of the Greeks in the time of Christ, as shown by stage costumes. Kerr claims in his first report, it's sort of a two-part story, he says, quote, it is firmly believed here that the airship was that of an exploring party from either Mars or the moon. So here we start to get some connecting threads to why UFO people would latch on to stories like this, because they would look at this and say, well, see, even then they were saying it was, it was outer space. This is also the era of Jules Verne writing stories about people going to the moon. So Kerr's second report just took things in a weird, strange direction. A uh, farmer Flegeltaub was charging a dollar a head for people who wanted to come into his barn and look at the corpses and tour the ship. And Kerr explains that 
that he was going to do so. He didn't have to pay a dollar because he was a member of the press. But he was a little freaked out, so he injected himself with a grain and a half of morphine and swallowed three (laughs) cocaine tablets to sort of psych himself up for it, which sounds just outrageous. If you're reading a newspaper in 1897, taking morphine and swallowing cocaine tablets, it'd be like us taking Excedrin, right? Right. Meme where it's like, doctor says you've got ghosts, go home and take cocaine or something like that. <laughs> yes, that's and that's what General Kerr yes. did. You've got airships, you know, take some <laughs> cocaine. Um, so Kerr enters the airship and he says it was divided into four sort of apartments or sections. There was a, a control room with the machinery and there's a powerful electric dynamo. And that's a word we need to bring back <laughs> dynamo. It's a generator and also a tank of air compressed into a liquid, which is also a very more of a 20th century thing It's sort of, mm-hmm. you know, liquid oxygen compressed cylinders and things like that. There were windows, uh, on each side of the room and, uh, The other areas were set up as sleeping rooms, and there was a bathroom as well. So then Kerr meets with the surviving crew member, who Kerr can now talk to, um, because Kerr realizes that he is speaking a language called Volapuk, which Kerr, Volapuk, it's a real made-up language. It's like Esperanto. It's like, let's invent a rational language. It was developed by a Catholic priest in Germany. But anyway, Kerr is talking in Volapuk, to this guy who says he is from Mars and that it was his ship that everybody has seen all over the country. So we've got some confirmation that it is one airship. So you've got a wrecked spaceship. What does the man from Mars do? He says, I want to go back to my machine. We went and visited it. Kerr says he used his hands to bend the metal back into the proper position. And he gets out this pot of like paste and spreads it over the airship. Kerr says he basically fixes it all up. He pulls a lever. The propellers were the machine lifts off the ground and says goodbye, slams the door and it goes off into the night. And Kerr concludes his story saying the crowd was awestruck by the proceedings. I myself to whom nothing is strange returned to Lanark and securing a room at the hotel, sat up all night smoking opium and eating hashish to get in condition to write this dispatch. And I don't know, Sam, how anybody could read this and think it was serious. I mean, it's, it's hilarious yeah. and awesome. And it is like this perfect little pulp sci-fi story that is funny with mm-hmm. rampant, historically accurate drug use. Um, <laughs> sort of Sherlock Holmes levels of drug use, (laughs) right? Because he used that stuff too. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, there was another crash, supposedly, a couple days later near Lanark. The witness is a local telegraph operator who hears what sounds like a tornado. A large ship is landing and it crashes. It has flapping wings like a bird, but it falls to the ground and the pilot gets out of the craft. It's how you heard Sam's voice describing the pilot at the beginning of this section of the episode, two feet tall with a pink beard. You don't forget something like that. (laughs) They asked where he came from, but he either couldn't hear them or couldn't understand them. They gave him some food. He ate three sides of bacon and drank two buckets of water, but would not eat any ham when it was offered to him, (laughs) which is very strange. And then quote, a short time after, three other persons, similar in stature and similarly attired, came out of the ship by means of long, peculiar ropes which reached the ground. They could not speak or hear. One carried a staff of gold. They're little dwarfs with a golden staff, climbing down robes and eating bacon. 
and special trains were sent with dignitaries to meet the crew. And, and several former governors were with them, the story said. And then following the story, there is a brief note that says the airship story is a fake. <laughs> like it's satire. I mean, I don't know. They're, they're taking all of the elements from society at the time and things you'd find in those common stories and, and throwing them into there, whether it be Sherlock Holmes's drug use because Sherlock Holmes was, you know, popular and coming out at that time um, or, you know, sort of the, the, the sci-fi Jules Verne type stuff. And then these airship right. sightings, they're just like, let's smash it all up together and create a thing and like make it very almost tongue in cheek. Like, I mean, I had to take all these drugs before I was able to write about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's a parody. Yes. Yeah. That, yes. I thought satire, but I was, knew that wasn't the word I needed. So yes, parody. The legacy of these airships is, you know, they would be this, this goofy Jules Verne era. Wasn't that a weird thing that some people talked about way back in the olden days? Except that in the 1940s and 1950s, you start seeing early UFO researchers digging up these stories and sort of, to use comic book terms, retconning them into flying saucer folklore. And one of the things that really ties it together for me is is that if you look at UFO contact stories from the 50s, the tour of the ship that General Kerr does that's almost like a blueprint for what you would see in the 1950s. But probably the biggest link between the UFO story and the legacy of the airships is what happened in Aurora, Texas in April of 1897. So in Aurora in April of 1897, there was supposedly a crash of a craft from the sky with a human seeming pilot. And what's interesting about this story and there are documentaries and books and Aurora, Texas is one of those sort of big stories. Sam, you're familiar with the Aurora story. From an early age, when I first started watching documentaries about UFOs and, and things like that, Aurora ends up coming up. So it, it's something I've heard of many times. And so it's one of these commonly known stories. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating about it is that the people of the town sort of came together to respectfully bury this spaceship pilot and erect like a monument there to him. And, and so there's like physical signs that people thought something mm -hmm. happened or that people wanted to make it look like people thought something happened. It, this is not the venue to do a deep dive on Aurora <laughs> because it's about as far from the Great Lakes as you can get <laughs> and still be in the United States. But it's a fascinating thing. And um, Samantha dug up some awesome sort of corroborating, I don't know if corroborating is the right word, but Texas was getting weird in April of, of 1897, mm -hmm. 38 airship sightings in Texas in four days between April 13th and April 17th. Um, a correspondent from the Dallas Morning News in Waxahachie, Texas, I'm going to say that's how you pronounce it, um, spoke with a judge, who, a judge responsible, <laughs> right, who claimed to have had a conversation with an airship crew who said they were from the North Pole. Yeah, and I thought I included that one because I found in another article reading about Wisconsin that there was this this theory out there that there was this continent north of the North Pole that had very advanced technology and advanced aeronautic technology. And so that's perhaps where these airships were coming from. And so it, we found it, this explanation as a theory in Wisconsin as well as here in Texas as well. 
Yeah. And the North Pole stuff, I mean, again, not the venue to get into it, but there's long-standing theories about if not a secret continent, an opening to the to the inner earth. You know, that that's also sort of North Pole's prominent in inner earth theory as well. And also very so, golden compass. I'm telling you, maybe Philip Pullman knew something we didn't about all of this stuff and the golden compass isn't completely fiction. I think that is I know you don't possibly. know the golden compass, but if anybody out there does. <laughs> but there are armored fighting polar bears, Aaron. Armored fighting polar bears. Oh, I might be 80% sold on this now, <laughs> if there are armored fighting polar bears. I mean, yes. I've always sort of been a fighting armored elephant guy, oh, but okay. polar bears would be <laughs> would be good. So there's a lot of weird stuff happening in in Texas. Um there's another I, I like I like this report. Um near Greenville, reporter said he spoke to an airship crew who said they were from New York testing a new invention that needed to be kept secret. There's this this hint of Maybe this isn't from Mars or the North Pole. Mm-hmm. Maybe these are just madcap Gilded Age inventors, um, sort of Edison, Edison on cocaine, <laughs> um, creating weird things and testing them out. Because this is a a very sort of aeronautically exciting time. Yeah, I mean, and it's not just coked out Thomas Edison. <laughs> Um, but there's a, there's a whole history of of this this lighter than air craft flight. So flight that relies on hot air. Um, ge- generally, of course, this this changes the type of air that was used eventually. But it starts off with with the hot air balloon, and the first hot air balloon um, took flight over Paris in 1783. Uh, trivia question: Do you know what two future at the time U.S. presidents saw this happen? Um, I would say Adams and Jefferson. Yes. Yeah. I think, you, did you guess that from, from like the date and stuff? Yeah. The date. Yeah. It's, it's in the, yeah. it's in the, um, the HBO miniseries, John Adams miniseries. They watch yep. It. Yep. So, so we have the hot air balloon and then in 1852, an inventor named Henri Giffard invented a dirigible that was in fact cigar shaped, which, which is a common theme that we see in a lot of these airship descriptions and it, it took flight, but the dirigible could not stand up to the wind. There was a strong wind that that's the way the craft was going. 1863, though, in New Jersey, an inventor came up with a hot air contraption that could actually be steered with a system of ballasts. It was not at all cigar shaped, um, but we're getting closer to something that could actually be maneuvered and would not be subjected to the winds. And there were many other attempts throughout the last decades of the 19th century to develop an aircraft that could fly independent of the winds. And many, many patents were submitted. So this desire, of course, for humans to take to the sky is, is age old. And we can see that this technology keeps advancing along. Of course, to us, it probably seems very primitive because we know what airplanes become, um, but we kind of need to take away that that knowledge that we have about how things continue to develop. And this was a very legitimate way that they thought this is going to be how we can fly through the sky someday. 
Um, and then in 1898, so this is a, a year after um, this, this series of airship sightings, um, an inventor named Alberto Santos Dumont successfully flew a motorized airship over Paris. So we see that at this time, the technology was available and a craft of this type could, in fact, be developed. There's no proof of it happening prior to 1898. Um, there were no claims that anybody in the United States had done so. But what, what I gathered from reading a lot of these different reports of these airship sightings is that this is where people's minds went. <laughs> um, very mm -hmm. few of them go towards UFO aliens, Martians, strange North Pole people, <laughs> whatever it might be. And they're thinking that there's just somebody out there, be it the Ringling Brothers or a, a crazy Gilded Age inventor or whomever it might be, who is trying out some new craft that, that they are, in fact, working on. When we look at this whole wave of of airship sightings and the development of you know known aerospace and 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 aero engineering that was going on both lighter than air things and heavier than air mechanical um devices as well the wright brothers are working on stuff uh samuel langley is working on stuff um we've got people working on this technology and it's it's an ongoing process when we look at all this and also other weird things not the place to do a deep dive but an organization called the sonoro aero club that was supposedly out in california quietly developing flying technology out of the sight of most people a mysterious organization called nimza that might have been doing the same thing these are things that are sort of buried in weird conspiratorial histories but along with the in the newspapers aircraft development there's this other weird stuff but when we try to look at what might have been happening in 1897 one explanation is from a guy named um, robert bartholomew who's an australian scholar he's a social psychologist and he points to efforts to develop flying machines and the publicity around them as being the key factor in fueling airship hysteria. He wrote, quote, during the airship episode, residents were preconditioned by the popular press to plausibly expect that the world's first heavier than air flying machine was on the verge of perfection, end quote. And he said the airship sightings were a symbolic projection of the belief in the technological revolution that was sweeping across America. So what he's saying is people were basically hallucinating the future the media promised them. What do you think about this theory, Sam? I know what I think. I want to know what you think. There are several things that I disagree with. Um, first, it's sort of, again, it's deterministic that it's the heavier than air flying ships that, that were going to, to make it. Um, and of course, at that time, I mean, th they wouldn't have known that, you know, we could all be zipping around and things that look like pirate ships with giant hot air balloons above them. <laughs> like, there's no way to know in the 1890s what type of air technology is going to become popular. Um, so I think it sort of presupposes that and completely ignores the fact that, that as I just pointed out, in 1898, someone had created an airship. <laughs> right. Um, and... and and of course, as we know from, you know, if you listen to episodes from our last run, when it came to like the mad gasser and things, and you look at ideas of hysteria, there are turbulent times. There are some things that have kicked off perhaps some fear or paranoia or whatever it might be in people. And they, you know, sort of together have this experience and they think that they see an airship because these are all very like communal 
sightings, right? I mean, it was happening all over. <laughs> it really was. And I I agree with you ab- about this. I just wanted you to say it. <laughs> In another section, he said it was basically people were over-optimistic right. and expecting heavier than air flight being being developed. And I'm, I'm thinking we're six years mm-hmm. out from the Wright brothers, right? People think things take way longer than they actually do. <laughs> you know, six years between this and an airplane in North Carolina is nothing. No. I mean, that's, that's not even, that's barely the passage of time <laughs> when you look at it a hundred years. It's, I don't think it's crazily optimistic Mm-mm. to expect that there would be flying things in the air that are real, but that you don't recognize because they're so new. Mm-hmm. And I could see eventually people are hoping that they will be one of the people who see the airship, right? Like maybe we'll see it tonight, right? you know, kind of right. having that excitement. But especially when you start looking at, at those like initial sightings in California, like how, how does that just come about? And it's not like it, it's a time when everybody's worried about UFOs in the sky or worried about seeing things flying in the sky. So to have that, that initial experience something caused that something made that happen and so maybe there was an air thing an an airship here in california maybe there was later an airship that was in wisconsin with the ringling brothers or something and so maybe there are these little things that are happening or even maybe it's just like a little a little thing that was put up into the sky and you know people are like whoa that's just like that thing over there um so i think it has to be a combination of of things. I, I don't know. That's a very poor explanation. But no, I, I agree. I, I think, I think there's, there's probably in some of these reports, there is a, a kernel mm-hmm. of people saw weird things, mm-hmm. not, not outer space things, right. not. And that's the thing. They weren't claiming outer space things even. No, not, not in any of the, the, Mm-mm. Except for General F.A. Kerr, right? <laughs> but I mean, the Wright brothers were just two bicycle repair guys, right? right? They were bicycle mechanics and, and they're working on airplanes in their spare time. Mm-hmm. This is the age of, um, not to get too generalized or, or stereotypical, this is the age of the amateur non-expert backyard inventor right. yes. coming up with, with things that change the mm-hmm. world. And why is it so ridiculous to believe that some of these people might have been building things and flying things that, mm-hmm. I mean, not to make it sound like a pun, that ended up not taking off <laughs> in in some mm-hmm. ways? Um, and I, I love the notion that there might be secret organizations that were working on the technology <laughs> that they didn't want to share with the general public and that sometimes the public caught a glimpse. Right. Well, yeah, a bunch of of these, you know, rich guys who, you know, I don't know, made a lot of money off of Standard Oil or something like that. We're like, hey, let's put all our money together and hire that smart kid down the street who's always tinkering with things and see what he can come up with. (laughs) Why not? I think that's uh, probably the best plan that anybody could have come up with. And I think we've solved the mystery of the airships. Thanks for listening. Mystery Airships was written and produced by Samantha Engel and Aaron Gullius. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore. <laughs>